I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What does it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 47, we read The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, published in 1973. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918 in Kislovodsk, Russia. He studied at Rostov University and the Moscow Institute of Literature. During World War II, he served as the commander of a sound-ranging battery in the Soviet Army, where he was involved in major action at the front and was decorated for personal heroism. In 1945, he was arrested for criticizing Soviet leader Joseph Stalin in private letters to a friend and was sentenced to an eight-year term in a labor camp, followed by exile. His experience of the camps formed the basis for his later works. Solzhenitsyn was released from exile by Khrushchev's reforms, which allowed him to return from Kazakhstan to central Russia in 1956. He taught mathematics at a high school while continuing to write in secret. He finished the Gulag Archipelago in 1968 and had it smuggled out of Russia. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, but publication of the Gulag Archipelago in 1973 brought retaliation from the Soviet authorities. In February 1974, Solzhenitsyn was arrested, stripped of his Soviet citizenship, and flown against his will to Frankfurt, Germany, West Germany. He moved to America in 1976 with his wife and sons and lived mostly in quiet rural seclusion for 18 years. In May 1994, he was allowed to return to his native Russia. He died in Moscow in 2008 at the age of 89. So the Gulag Archipelago is a nonfiction account of the imprisonment, brutalization, and very often murder of tens of millions of innocent Soviet citizens by their own government during the time of Lenin and Stalin from 1918 to 1956. Solzhenitsyn's task with this book, as he saw it, was to document for the Soviet people the full dimensions of what happened. Archipelago refers to the far-flung system of forced labor camps run throughout the Soviet Union, whose prisoner population grew from very small numbers after the uh, October Revolution of 1917 to anywhere from 12 to 15 million prisoners at any one time, by the 1940s and beyond. GULAG is the acronym of the central office that administered the, these penitentiary camps. Solzhenitsyn's main sources are his own experience in the GULAG from 1945 to 1953, and those related to him by 227 other survivors that he interviewed, as well as other published uh, information about the, about the GULAG. He shares victim experiences from arrest to first cell and interrogation, and then on through the transit prison, prisons and across the vast country and overcrowded pestilent trains, as the New York Times said at the time, to the ports of the labor camps. So this book jumps out at you. It's written in a, a style of not so much, it's, it's journalism, but it has that just pop quality where he just, he'll tell a story and then move on to the next and then jump to another and another. It's not particularly linear, but 
but it really catches your attention because there's just one story after another, after another of experiences that these people have starting with, you know, their arrests, which were just as bad as any movie, you know, the Mm -hmm. movies got their ideas from somewhere and it was, you know, these Soviet soldiers who just are secret police, you know, ripping you out of bed in the middle of the night, spotlight on your face and they don't let you get dressed. And they say, you know, you horrible traitor, come down with us, you know, and it just was as much of a nightmare as, uh, as any movie would portray. Yeah. And I think the, um, I think the, the nonlinear quality of it, how he jumps kind of around within the theme, you know, there's a chapter about arrests where he talks about different arrests that people relate to him. And it, I think that kind of plays into the, the nature of the system too. I mean, it feels a little like a pointillist, I guess, or like chaotic, you know, like there's these different, but that's kind of how the system was. I mean, because as he gets into it, there's not a, a lot of the people weren't, weren't even being arrested for a particular reason, you know, and that's, that's one of the first things that jumped out at me is this, mm-hmm. there were quotas, you know, it was like, Hey, in the town of Rostov, we need a thousand people. You know, it's not like we know that there are a thousand traders in Rostov. It's like, find a thousand so they did and you know they pick somebody up and they torture him and he until he gives some names and they pick those people up and it's that sort of just there's no system there's a system but there's no system and that that i think comes through in the writing where it's just you're jumping from point to point in that kind of postmodern way but it's i i think it it really it kind of conveyed the um confusion and chaos that a and a an accused person would would feel as he's thrust into this bizarre machine that kind of runs on its own. Mm -hmm. So here's an example. As early as 1921, this is his writing, interrogations usually took place at night. At that time, they shone automobile lights in the prisoners' faces, and they made use of the hot air heating system to fill the first cell, first with icy cold and then with stinking hot air, no ventilation, and they cooked the prisoners. When they saw this happening through the peephole, they would put the prisoner on a stretcher and take him off to sign his confession. As long ago as 1919, the chief method used by the interrogator was a revolver on the desk. That was how they investigated not only political, but also ordinary misdemeanors and violations. The frightening revolver lies there, and sometimes it is aimed at you, and the interrogator doesn't tire himself out thinking up what you are guilty of, but shouts, come on, talk, you know what about... Once it was established that charges had to be brought at any cost, and despite everything, threats, violence, tortures became inevitable. And the more fantastic the charges were, the more ferocious the interrogation had to be in order to force the required confession. Given the fact that the cases were always fabricated, violence and torture had to accompany them. And it was useless to seek absolute evidence, for evidence is always relative or unchallengeable witnesses. For they can say different things at different times. The proofs of guilt were relative, approximate, and the interrogator could find them even when there was no evidence and no witnesses without leaving his office, basing his conclusions on his own intellect and his the party's sensitivity. Those are his moral forces. So just a, a, a nightmare scenario. Yeah. I mean, it almost almost literally, you, you wake from a dream and you're thrust into... You know, this insane madness that you, you're just you're just going out there living life and all of a sudden they're telling you you're a traitor to your country and we're going to torture you until you admit it it's yeah it's it's wild and there was a uh, one quote where he, he talked about uh the interrogators would say informally you know give us a person and we'll create the case yeah <laughs> that is well we talk when we talk about 
natural rights and then due process on this podcast. It, it often seems abstract, you know, like, what do we, oh, you know, yeah, the, the right to cross-examine witnesses, you know, the right to a speedy trial. It's, these are important, but, you know, then you have, you know, socialists then and now who will say, well, what does it matter if you can't eat, you know, or something like this. But these, these natural rights, I mean, this is what happens in a system where they don't exist. Mm-hmm. This, this will happen every time. And as you pointed out, and we were talking about it before the podcast, Solzhenitsyn says many times how this was not a, a Stalin, Stalinist aberration in an otherwise perfect system. I mean, you said Lenin was getting it. They were, they were doing these camps, initially concentration camps before they became labor camps mm-hmm. in the early 20s. Lenin was talking in 1918 about the, how there's going to be forced labor camps for enemies of the new regime. I mean, this, it wasn't like this was a system gone awry. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, you know, this is what communists and socialists or whatever are going to say. Oh, th- that wasn't true socialism. They weren't doing it, you know, the way it was meant to be. But according to Lenin, this was how it was meant to be from the word go. Right. It was instant that as soon as the left forces took control and the Bolsheviks were not even the majority yet. This was happening. Enemies of the regime were sent to camps. Evidence. No, there were no public trials. There was none of this. It was right away. Boom. We don't like you. We're going to force you to labor for us. And you know, uh, if you don't like it, if, if it kills you eventually, who cares? So it, it, it's really just, it was, as much as you know about the Soviet system, I think we, we also kind of absorb these defenses of it that you hear from, you know, hipster communists around, you know, oh, it's, mm-hmm. that's, this is a perversion of the true socialism. No, I don't know, because the actual purveyors of, of socialism didn't think so. They thought it was part and parcel of the whole thing. Yeah. Let's put a fine point on it because Solzhenitsyn goes to great lengths to put a fine point on because when he was writing this and publishing this, there was, it was very fashionable still, you know, up through the 1970s to sort of blame all the, the, the horrors on Stalin and say, well, that, as you said, an aberration, like he was just a bad guy who perverted the true, true faith. But Solzhenitsyn says in 1921, the camps were already in full flower in the first months of the October Revolution, Lenin was already demanding draconian measures to tighten up discipline with prisons. In 1917, Lenin suggested confiscation of all property, confinement to prison, dispatch to the front, and forced labor for all who disobey the existing law. Forced labor had been advanced in the first month of the October Revolution, he says. This is a quote from Lenin. The suppression of the minority of exploiters by the majority of the hired slaves of yesterday is a matter so comparatively easy, simple, natural, that is going to cost us much less in blood, which will be much cheaper for humanity. Secure the Soviet Re- Soviet Republic against its class enemies by isolating them in concentration camps. And Solzhenitsyn makes the point, according to estimates, this comparatively easy quote-unquote that uh, Lenin spoke of, the internal repression cost, this, cost the Russian people from the beginning of the October Revolution up to 1959 a total of 66 million lives. By the end of 1920, during Lenin's time, there were 84 camps, 84 camps in 43 provinces. 
So I just had a conversation with somebody about this only a couple months ago who was saying like, um, you know, Lenin was the true faith. And I'm like, have you ever read the Gulag Archipelago? Cause you need to. <laughs> yeah. It's really, uh, it's, it, it's something. I mean, because Tsarist Russia was no picnic either, but he, the comparisons he makes to that and what came after are remarkable. Like he talks about, I mean, how many secret police there were in Russia? I mean, a million? It, 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 tons of them. Cause, cause everybody was being monitored. Everybody was subject to this system. And he compares it to the Tsar system, which, oh, the Tsar had the secret police. They'd send you to Siberia too. And he says that at their height, they had about 21 guys, you know, <laughs> in the whole country. Because, you know, if, if you were a, a serf or a peasant, no one was bothering you, you know? I mean, you, your life wasn't great. Russian peasants did not have the, in some ways you could see why they might be tempted by a new system, even one that turned out to be worse for most people. But, uh, you know, you were left alone. The, the people the czar was after were a few intellectuals who were challenging the, you know, the, the autocratic state, you know, men like, uh, you know, uh, Chekhov and Dostoevsky, you know, the Soviets, yeah, they'd put you, they'd put those people in Gulag. They'd also put random people working in a factory in the Gulag or random people working on a farm, you know, who were maybe, yeah, maybe they said something that they didn't like the way something in the government was going. They didn't, you know, maybe they made a joke about Stalin or maybe they didn't. And it's just somebody said they did. So it, it just, the going from a not great state like Tsarist Russia to just taking the worst parts of that and expanding them a hundred thousand fold. It's really, um, it's, it's remarkable. Um, just how much, how much worse everything got in a place that was already pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was another, another comparison too. He talked about how, you know, when you're working in these camps, you're, it, it comes to your mind that this is exactly how they describe serfs, serfdom, you know, the sort of like mandatory peasantry that existed before Tsar Alexander the third liberated the serfs. You know, you couldn't leave, you had to work. They said, you know, there are differences and most of them are to the benefit of the serf. And you're like, they had Sundays off, they had holidays off. <laughs> they worked at most yeah. sun up to sundown, which is a lot, you know, when you're doing manual farm labor. But, but out in the, in the in the gold mines uh, of Siberia, they're working from before dawn to after dawn, no days off, and and starvation rations because this is, I mean, there, there's really like no comparison to anything within our system, like even compared to like a a, a slave plantation, it's like that if the owners wanted to kill you ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, they didn't even care about the prisoners lives because there were more. And part of the purpose was to work them to death. They would just, they would just arrest more. You know, so, I mean, to compare that to serfdom, you know, the landlords who owned the serfs weren't exactly, you know, they were not nice characters, but they weren't trying to kill you. They were just trying yeah. to work you, get some money out of you so they can support their nice lives. You know, it's a, a sort of gross feudalism, but it's, the Soviets found a way to make it worse. Solzhenitsyn makes it crystal clear that we're not just talking about people getting rounded up because they were enemies of the of the Soviet state. In fact, that was probably a, a drop in the bucket compared to the millions and millions of people who were taken. He says the economic need was manpower, free, undemanding, 
capable of being shifted about from place to place any day of the week, free of family ties, not requiring either established housing or schools, hospitals, or even kitchens and baths. He says throughout the nation, unemployment was abolished, right? Bernie's promising this too. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have, you know, everyone's going to have everything they have ever wanted. Unemployment's going to be abolished. Well, you know how it happens. They're rounded up and thrown in a camp and the work that they do is hardcore labor that actually needs to get done, right? It's not just a matter of these guys are enemies of the state. They were taken because he says one cannot enumerate nor cover all the different aspects of the laborer's work, nor wrap your tongue about them. Push a wheelbarrow, unload bricks, barehanded, break up stone in a coal quarry and mine, cut coal underground, carve tunnels for railroads, build road beds, dig peat in the bog, smelt ores, cast metal. What, what does this all have in common? You know, it's not just, Hey, see that big pile of dirt, shovel it to that corner of the lot today. And then tomorrow shovel it back. It's not work for the sake of work. It's work that needs to be done. And why does it need to be done? Because in this happy, fanciful world of utopia where everybody has a job. Well, if everybody has a job and everybody's getting paid the same, then ain't nobody want to go live in the far reaches of the Arctic to break up stone and carve tunnels for railroads. Yeah. So we're going to force them to do it. We need, we need 15 million people to do it at any given time. So you're not going to go. Well, Looks like you're an enemy of the state and we're going to interrogate you. And then we're going to sentence you to 15 years of hard labor because of your quote unquote crimes, because all this stuff needs to be done in order to move a civilization forward. Like, yeah, that's, that's part of the, like what we talk, we've talked about in a few different, um, books, like Hayek pointed out that, you know, when you're, when you're creating a system where there's one goal and everyone has to do it, you have to be right. And uh, the Soviets were pretty sure they were right. It turns out they weren't. But what what happened? And and you know that cost the lives of sixty some million, like 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 he said in the in the part you quoted earlier. And you know, I mean, they had this idea that Russia, an agrarian nation with a few industrial pockets, was going to become an industrial power, like Germany, like the, the the kind of places that Marx wrote about when he was talking about socialism. You know, these were industrial societies. Well, you know, Lenin was a communist in the Marxist tradition, but he also said, well, you know, but my country is agrarian. So we'll just make it industrial and that'll, you know, bring about all the changes. And then, so how do you do that when everybody's a peasant? Well, you make a good portion of them into slaves. And the work they're describing too is, you know, he's like, well, how would you do this with a tractor? Who had a tractor? You just had men pull it. You know, I mean, this was, I remember reading, um, there's a book called The People's Tragedy by Orlando figs, I think. It's about the revolution in Russia and the immediate aftermath. They were talking about the peasants there um, before the revolution were pulling plows like a man would pull the plow, you know, whereas in in the West, even in the most backward farm town, it was an ox pulling a plow, you know? Yeah. In Russia, it was a man. That's, they were so poor, they didn't have the ox. Now, but then you talk, you know, reading here in Solzhenitsyn, he's talking about the camps that he was in in the 50s where they're chopping down trees by men getting ropes around them and pulling them down you know like they didn't have the axe yeah yeah you know but when you don't care you know when you're not trying they're not trying to improve efficiency you know they're just well we've got these men they work for free axe costs money you know it's like and they talked about the um people who had to take care of horses in the camps 
It's like, don't steal food from the horse. The horse is state property. You, you're replaceable. The horse, we can't get another horse out here. He'll be executed if you steal his oats. Yeah. You know, and it's somebody, so here's somebody on starvation rations. He's got to feed oats to a horse. Let me get a bite, you know? No, that, that would give you another 10 years. It's, it's just from a system that wants to talks about, you know, valuing every person. They, they treated humans like the most expendable garbage. Yeah. Just like worth less than animals, worth less than machines, worth less than the industrial products they were making, worth less than gold or coal or copper or whatever they were pulling out of the ground. Just, you know, oh, that one died. Whatever. Throw them in the pit with the rest. We'll get another prisoner's shipment in a week. It's just amazingly callous, amazingly every nightmare scenario described by anti-communists is true in this description of communism. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out it was. So I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit more of what he says as far as more description of what, what Kyle just described. The life of natives consists of work, 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 starvation, cold, and cunning. The oldest kinds of work in the archipelago is logging. Snow comes up to your chest. First, you yourself stamp it down next to the tree trunk. You cut down the tree, then hardly able to make your way through the snow. You cut off all the branches, drag it through the snow, saw up up the wood to size and stack it. By then, your arms would not be capable of lifting an axe, nor your feet of moving. Camp inmates called three weeks of logging dry execution. Summer workday was sometimes 16 hours long. These were hours on the job itself, over and above the three miles walk to the forest and three miles back. If the brigade didn't fulfill the work norm, the work sloggers were left in the woods by the light of searchlights until midnight. So they got back to the camp just before morning in time to eat their dinner along with their breakfast and go out into the woods again. There is no one to tell about it either at, at this particular place, Carlag, that he was talking about, because they all died in, in, in temperature colder than 60 degrees below zero, 60 below, which I can't even imagine. Oof, yeah. They, um, they were not required to go out and work, but he says the records showed that the workers had not gone out to work, but the guards still chased them out anyway, because whatever they squeezed out of them on those days was added to the other days and thereby raising the percentage and making, making the, the camp wardens look good. I mean, it's just as horrific as, as we could, as we could ever imagine. And we want to make the point too, that for those who are thinking, well, you know, that was a okay, so these guys were really bad guys. That has nothing to do with communism. But, you know, the the forced industrialization, the murder of millions of people, the starvation, same thing in China, right? Mm-hmm. Great leap forward. You know, tens of millions of people are are forced into labor and starvation and, and death. And everywhere in the world where this has occurred, in Russia, in China, in Cuba, in Vietnam, in North Korea, North Korea, the poorest, most backward country in the history of the world, and uh, and now in Venezuela. I mean, how many times do you have to hit your finger with a hammer before you realize you should move it? Yeah, people make the point. You know, people try and say it was just bad actors within a, a good system. But I, I think Solzhenitsyn makes the point that, yeah, many human beings are capable of evil, but the system is here is what made it happen. I think he says... To do evil, a human being must first of all believe that he's doing what is good, or else that it's a well-considered act in conformity with natural law. Fortunately, it's in the nature of the human being to seek a justification for his actions. 
Macbeth's self-justifications were feeble and his conscience devoured him. Yes, even Iago was a little lamb, too. The imagination and spiritual strength of Shakespeare's evildoers stopped short at a dozen corpses because they had no ideology. Ideology, that is what gives evildoing its long-sought justification. It gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. That is the social theory which helps to make his acts seem good instead of bad in his own eyes and others' eyes, so that he won't hear reproaches and curses, but will receive praise and honor. That ideology must be one that destroys all other outside forms of morality. Yeah. And that's many of the utopian ideologies we've discussed here, especially communism, do that. You know, there's no family, there's no church, there's no tradition, there's just this. Just this Marxism, this this new Soviet man we're going to achieve. And anything you have to do to get there, you must do. Because yeah. it's the only good in the world is this. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like he talks about Shakespeare characters who were, you know, based on the kind of people that Shakespeare would have known, who lived in a, in a religious society, one where if an evil king said, do this, they might say, well, you know, we've got, that seems to violate a lot of the things we've been taught. Maybe we shouldn't do it. But in building this new Soviet man, the Soviet system excluded all of that, excluding all of this external basis for morality and only had their own. And it, it makes it a hundred times easier to just be the kind of evil person who will send a person to do 10 years of hard labor from which I think you said about half never survived it. Yeah. It's just, you know, at the drop of a hat because it's, Oh, well, I, my ideology tells me, we need, yeah. the, we need that gold mine so we can afford to buy the things from the West that will industrialize us. So I'm going to send people to work in a gold mine at 60 below zero. And if they die, they die. It didn't just destroy them physically. He talks about the human toll. He says the reduction of the human being to an animal and the process of dying alive. He has this description of the jealousy that they had of one another's food, like hunger, which compels the most unselfish person to look with envy into someone else's bowl. Hunger creating insomnia that never goes away. You know, it just turns people into animals because they suddenly, he says, everyone carries all their belongings to the work site, the few that they had. You know, if they had a blanket, they wore it around their neck all day because it would be stolen in an instant. It'd be stolen by, uh, by another inmate. It'd be stolen by a guard. And these, these inmates used to be normal human beings, good people probably, but have been their souls have been just so crushed and destroyed that they start to behave in these, in these, in these ways where it's just survive at all costs. You know, he says barracks infested with insects, bed bugs crawling all over them. You know, the prisoners boil the lice off their underwear and their mess tins after dining with them going barefoot in the snow. <laughs> yeah. Arctic, Arctic freeze that, that never thaws. You know, he says, I'm writing this book solely from a sense of obligation because too many stories and recollect recollections have accumulated in my hands and I can't, cannot allow them to perish. I do not expect to see it in the print anywhere with my own eyes. And I have little hope that those who manage to drag their bones out of the archipelago will ever read it. And I do not at all believe that it will explain the truth of our history in time for anything to be corrected. But he just felt compelled. Like this was so horrific. So, so the the physical and mental and soul destruction it had to be told and he just that's why he felt compelled to write the book yeah i mean that 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 reducing people to just base animals is so 
it's it's so uh, disturbing to read. I mean, even from the from the first before they even get into the camp, they're tortured into confessing something they didn't do, never heard of. You yeah. know, so the whole thing starts out with you betraying with yourself because yeah. they're just going to torture you until you say yes. So you just eventually. I mean, who who could who could resist that? You know, it's like he gives a few examples of people who did the kind of horrible tortures they're describing in the interrogations you're gonna eventually just say, yeah i did it fine just stop doing this to me yeah yeah especially when you're threatening his, your the family you know yeah you're... and then like on the cha- you know on the chapter uh about women in camp talk about you know yeah, so how bad. people will have to do anything to survive it becomes immediately clear to the women especially the attractive ones that if you become the girlfriend of a camp guard things are a lot better and here's women who would never resort to that sort of thing in their regular lives, you know, makes them into whores, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, you know, for, and for, you know, it's not, it's still, they're still prisoners, you know, but they're getting, maybe they get to hang out with the guards in a, in a warmer cabin, have fried potatoes instead of gruel, you know, it's like when you, but when, when all you've got is freezing and gruel, morality is, is compromised and we are reduced to. You know, and then, and and I, he doesn't seem to blame anyone for anything they did because he was there and he knows that just that when you're just this close to dying, you'll do anything to survive. Even if what was once the rational part of your brain says that's this isn't right or, you know, this is against my moral code. It's just, it's a, here's a system that's reducing us to beasts. And so he has, uh, he has a couple chapters where he, he talks about the, essentially the police state that existed back in the civilization. He says, recruitment went on all the time. There was no minute when people were not being arrested. Any adult inhabitant of this country always knew that it would take only one careless word or gesture, and he would fly off irrevocably into the abyss. Fear was not always the fear of arrest. There were intermediate threats, purges, inspections, the completion of security questionnaires, routine or extraordinary ones, dismissal from work, deprivation of residence permit, expulsion or exile. The aggregate fear led to a correct consciousness of one's own insignificance and of the lack of any kind of rights. No worker could quit of his own accord. Passport regulations fastened everyone to particular places. Housing could not be sold or exchanged nor rented. Secrecy and mistrust abound. No one could ever quit work or leave, and every little detail was kept in sight and within earshot for years. Spouses hide things from each other. No neighbor trusted each other, informing one another of nothing, neither shouting nor groaning, and learning nothing from one another. We were completely in the hands of the newspapers and of the official orders. In every group of people, in every office, in every apartment, either there would be an informer or else the people would be afraid there was. One-fourth of every city dweller had received a proposal to become an informer. Any person who had let himself to be recruited would, out of fear of public exposure, be very interested in the continuing stability of the regime. What a horror show. You know, mm-hmm. the, the entire civilization is just nobody trusts one another. You can't even share things with your spouse because it could be overheard or it could be used against her, you know, somehow. Again, like, this, this is not an aberration because... As we record this podcast, the coronavirus is raging in China, but we actually have no idea to what extent, you know, who, how many are sick, how many are, how many are, have died, because these same conditions that we that Solzhenitsyn describes of Soviet Russia, 
exist today in China, you know, in North Korea, in, mm-hmm. in these in these communist countries. So it's not an aberration. This is a this is an outgrowth. It's 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 a, a necessary uh, aspect of the of a what's required in order to f- compel people. The the equalization of people, the control of one party, you know, over everyone. You can't move. If I decided this afternoon that I wanted to move to New York or to Peoria, Illinois, I could, you know, in a free society. They couldn't do that. If you were born there, you're staying there for the rest of your life. And you're not going to pick up and move because you can't switch jobs, can't sell your house, can't rent somewhere else, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we talked about these camps in China that they've had for the, uh, for the Uyghur people, the, the Muslims in Western China, there was more than a million of them in the camps and for no reason other than being of that ethnicity and that religion, you know, and he talks about religious people being sent to the camps in Russia where it wasn't technically against the law to be a Christian in, in atheist Russia, but you could never talk about it. And if you taught your children it, that was against the law because you were perverting them from the aim the state wanted to put them to. So such people would end up in camps just as the Muslims are now being put in camps in China, just as Christians are being persecuted in China. If they stray from the, you know, the, there is a, a Chinese Christian church that's kind of basically run by the party that you're allowed to go to because it doesn't challenge anything. And, you know, they take all the hard parts out. But if you, if you are a member of an independent religion in China, you're subject to these same kind of persecutions that Solzhenitsyn talks about 60, 70 years ago in Russia. Nothing's changed. China has more money than Russia did. But that's it. And there are still tons of poor people over there who are subject to these exact conditions. Yeah, not being able to move. That's the thing in China. The, the hukou is the... Uh, the right to live in a place. And, you know, if you move to the city from a farm, like people have done throughout history since the industrial revolution started in America or in Britain or in Germany, that's part of, that's a choice. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, I don't like farm work. There's not enough of it. I'm going to go work in the city, make some money in China. That's a crime. That's illegal immigration. Yeah. Which is crazy to think of because they're not leaving the country. They're Chinese. They're allowed to be there. But moving without state permission is the same as, as as crossing a border illegally. You're you're a criminal just for being there. It's wild, you know, and and it's something we don't think about. And what what's good about, I think about this book too is he tells individual stories because you know hearing numbers is a thing. You know, it's, oh wow, that's that's terrible. This many millions, no kidding. But then when when you hear a, just the story of one person. Yeah. Oh man, that's awful. Oh, I wouldn't want that to happen. That's a horrible thing. And then, all right, multiply that by a million. Yeah. It's it's yeah. almost incomprehensibly bad. I mean, we we don't have the brains for that kind of big number. Yeah, I mean the the chapter that you that you mentioned about women in the camp that was probably the most horrifying. I mean, he said on the one hand you want to be attractive enough to be propositioned by the guards because you can have a some benefits. On the other hand. He said attractive women were the most cursed because they were the ones who were constantly basically raped. You know, you're doing hard labor all day and then come back and get raped by three guys. And he was talking about the, you know, the teenagers too, who would watch this and go ahead and do it themselves. You know, I mean, just 
so horrible. Monstrous. And, uh, and I think for, for you and I right now, if, if we had read this, I mean, I read this book years ago and I was de- deeply affected by it, but the urgency has just changed dramatically. I mean, as we, as we record this podcast, Bernie Sanders just won the Nevada caucus. You know, could that guy be our, could a closet communist become our, become our president? And the idea that, that people still entertain the, the prospect that, that this type of system that has failed again and again and again and again and again and again. I saw this one Bernie bro who's being interviewed. He was asked, can you name a, a country or a, or a society that's ever succeeded with this uh, sort of regime? And he, he's like, uh, couldn't come up with it. You know, Bernie points to the some Scandinavian countries, but, you know, Denmark, Sweden, they have some of the Cato will will grade them some of the highest, given some of the highest grades for capitalist freedom. I mean, mm-hmm. they have some of the highest economic freedom and they have more billionaires per capita, you know, as a percentage of the population than America does. I mean, the difference is they have socialist programs of well, uh, they have a welfare state that's paid for by the middle class, mm-hmm. right? They're not, they're not, they're not bashing. You know, it's not class warfare. They're saying, Hey, look, as a, as a middle class, you know, the, the majority of the people, should we have these things? You know, I could debate whether we should or shouldn't, but at the very least they're honest and saying, all right, we want them. So we'll pay for them. Not we want them. So let's string up the witches, you know, the, the millionaires and billionaires who are, who are such evil people who are creating jobs. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of, a lot of what they, he would even call what he's talking about. A lot of it is Scandinavia in the seventies. Since that time, as a lot of those programs have failed, a lot of the things have been rolled back. Made, like Sweden has, I think, privatized their social security system and they have more widespread school voucher program than we have. Oh, I love it. But, all right. I mean, Bernie is living in the past. He's an old man. But he's, I mean, he's really, his his ideas are in the past. And also the idea that he likes Scandinavian social democracy is BS. Right. I mean, when he took his honeymoon, he didn't go to Stockholm. He went to Yaroslavl, yeah. where he was escorted around by KGB tour guides and shown you know, the Potemkin village of, oh, look, Soviet socialism works. Here's all these happy people, you know, and, and he believed it like an idiot because he wanted to believe it. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, every, most people would know in a repressive state, you know, if, if a, an agent of the state is showing you all of the. Well, these are typical happy citizens. No, <laughs> you know that's nonsense, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. but no, he wanted to believe it so bad. So he was he was never a Scandinavian-style social democrat. This is nonsense. But that sounds more acceptable because we know those societies are, they're not as prosperous as we are, but like you said, they have they are capitalist countries with a, just a stronger welfare state than, than we. But it, yeah, I mean, Bernie was a an admirer of the Soviet Union when it existed, and probably still is. Yeah, I mean the 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 videos are starting to emerge on on, mm-hmm. on my Twitter feed of of him glorifying the the Soviet subway system, like he said, and, and and just more to come. But the guy is so completely out to lunch. And what our parents lived through the Cold War, we caught the tail end of it. You know, as as kids, it's seared into our minds. You know, the, this new generation of 
younger millennials and the iGen, they have no idea. They think it's a video game, that communism and socialism is just something you can pick off a menu. Meanwhile, they're staring at their phones and reading all, you know, like brought to you by by <laughs> the free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know. That's why I think this, this book is so important. And it, as groundbreaking as it was in the 70s when it came out, it is the, because we have to constantly relearn the lessons of the past. It is kind. It should feel groundbreaking today, even 50, uh, close to fifty years on. You know, I mean, I, I think it. This, along with the Diary of Anne Frank, should be required reading in high schools. Yeah, yeah. kid, kids should see the two big totalitarian experiences of the twentieth century, and 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 learn from from the words of people who lived in them, you know, what, what was going on. I think a lot of, I mean, we're middle-aged and, you know, you want to say the youth don't know anything, but I don't think the youth were taught anything about yeah, this. Yeah. I don't think they were taught about the evils of communism. And maybe it's because by then we had won, you know, so maybe I think maybe the teachers were, would, you know, to put the best face on it would say, well, we don't need to teach them. Look, that system was clearly discredited. The Cold War is over. But, uh, but here it comes again, you know, like we have zombie communism coming back from the dead, Yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah, kids living in this, the richest society the world has ever known, you know, the greatest comfort, the peace and prosperity. And they're saying, you know, and then they're, they're posting memes about Stalin, you know, it, it, what are you doing? How can you, how can you look at this society? Because I think, because they don't know, because their, their, their experience is narrow. And their education is narrow. So, I mean, yeah. it's to read, to read here the words of somebody who survived that system and the stories he learned, not only his own, but of all the other people who he interviewed for this book, 200 something, you, you, you said the number earlier. This, this is something we should hear. Everyone should yeah. hear. Exactly right. And, you know, our school system, to its credit, has done a good job of making sure that the kids under growing up, they understand that Nazism that the Holocaust is bad and rightly so, but 66 million people killed in the Soviet gulag, you know, I don't know what the, how many millions in, uh, in China. And, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me is like, well, I, I think it's because the, these academics actually have a soft spot for the goals, you know, like, well, they were trying to do the right thing. They just fell off track. So we don't want to, you know, we don't want to criticize too much. And, uh, I think, I think what Solzhenitsyn would reply is, that's pure fantasy. It didn't fall off the tracks. This is how it was always going to be and the way that it always will have to be. And that's what we can expect. You know, you with the Che Guevara t-shirt, you know, <laughs> guess, you know, you know, the upside of your ideology is gulag and torture and human destruction. Any other last thoughts, Kyle? No, I think that sums it up. All right. That's Solzhenitsyn. Highly, highly recommend you read this book. Five stars, one of the greatest books ever written. So that's Solzhenitsyn. Catch us next time. Thanks.